Welcome to the next class. I'm Rob Bertzel, your host, and joined as always by my co-host, Tom Bernford. Tom, Great. good to see you. Good to see you, Rob. Great to be with you again. Yes, and you, and actually looking forward to seeing you real, not uh, not on a Zoom call next week, which will be fun to be in person. That's right. A couple of days of uh, strategy and planning and looking towards the future. And um, uh, I know I'm coming to those couple of days, Robs, with some of the learnings that we've had from the next class uh, and also greatly looking forward to what we're going to learn today. Absolutely. We uh, we dropped our first episode with Father Dennis Holchenader and getting some good reviews on that. So today we have a very special guest, uh, Richard Barth, who is the longtime CEO for the past 17 years of KIPP, arguably one of the best, if not the best, charter network in America. Uh, I was introduced to Richard in about 2007, right when I became CEO of Christa Ray by a mutual donor of Christa Ray and KIPP, um, Rick Braddock, who thought very highly of KIPP and thought that we at Christa Ray could use a little of their secret sauce. So he connected me and Richard. And I got to say, even though Richard will be joining us here, it was amazing, his generosity. He literally gave me the playbook for almost everything we did, Tom, at Christa Ray. You know, he said, number one, it's wow. all about leadership. So we, we built a leadership program at Kellogg. It's about your board. We added some great board members. Uh, and then he said, number three, student outcomes. And that, I mean, I still remember it to this day. And I've taken notes furiously and I came back and I had a strategy. Uh, so it was a lot of fun. Awesome. And since then, he and I have stayed connected. Uh, whenever I am in New York, we'll get together. And so, Tom, I'm very excited for this conversation with Richard. Wonderful. That's great. That's great. So with that, Richard, come on in to the next class. Glad, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. No, it's great to great to see you, great. and uh, we're excited for this conversation. So, Tom, you want to kick us off? Sure, great. Good to uh, good to meet you, Richard, and good to uh, chat. And you know, Richard, as, as as Rob referred to, you know, Kip has experienced huge growth, uh, a little bit like Crystal Ray uh, under your leadership, Rob. So, one of the questions though we have, Richard, is you know, how have you um, in your time at Kip been able to protect? the core elements of KIPP that made you successful at the beginning and sort of protect those those secret source elements as you've grown? Because we know a lot of times when an organization grows, you lose some of what is essential from the beginning. So, you know, as a leader, how did you how did you protect that? Yeah. So um, it's a great question. And I'm going to I'm going to do one little tweak to it and say, um, and I think I've learned this, I've learned this from a lot of people um, and potentially one of the greater influences uh, on my thinking here has been Reed Hastings, who's one of our board members. And I think we've had conversations over time, Tom, about how it's hard to protect something. It's hard to keep something the way it is. And and actually the, the goal of protecting something or preserving something can actually become you know, uh, an impediment. So, yes. so, so the, the question is yep. like, I'm not out of predict, but how do you, how do you build an organization that is always learning clear on like what its core is and then, and then always learning and looking to get better. And so, um, if you try to maintain something often, you know, I think others have said to me, you end up going, you know, you lose, but if you're trying to get better, you, you're going to do a better job, obviously maintaining or protecting because you're always better. So, so that's the first thing. Second thing I'd just say is we, we, you know, and, and Rob, you know, sort of pointed to this in your nice opening, Rob, as big as you might get as a school system, um, the, 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 the center of everything is going to be the individual school. That's the experience that a child has. That's the experience that a family has. That's the experience that a, um, staff member, a teacher has. And so, if you can really make sure that your your school leaders are centered in the mission, 
whatever that may be, and centered in understanding what you're about. And they're not just able to, to talk about it, but they can walk it and they can live it. You, you're, you're going to protect it. You're going to maintain it. And then you have a chance to go, to go beyond. If you lose sight of that, I think it, it can get really hard really quickly um, because there's only so much you can do from outside that building if the leadership in the building isn't the one that's that's keeping everyone um, pointing towards your North Star. And so that's that's why we have overweighted year in and year out towards that investment in building our leadership pipeline and making sure um, they're ready and feeling prepared to carry us forward. You know, Richard, yeah. leadership, I, I, again, I remember you talking to me about that in 2007, but could you share with, with our listeners, and, and you know Catholic schools pretty well, um, how, how would some of your lessons in leadership apply or be adaptable to Catholic schools as, as you know them? So I think one, um, first, you might say that the Catholic schools might have a you know, built-in advantage relative to other possible systems because I would like to at least think that you've got a um, alignment on mission um, that's a little bit built in. Right. So, so that's, you know, building from there, then I would say, how much time, energy, resources are you putting into um, the development of your leaders and their continued, um, you know, building of their capabilities to carry that work forward. So you may have the benefit of not having to do as much mission grounding work. I don't, you may say, no, we do, we need to do that just as much as anyone. But uh, if you're bringing people together, your leaders together, that's a start. If you're bringing and, and keeping an eye on the next generation of leaders, that's where you're really going to um, win. And if you have, you know, local uh, boards or advisory boards or parish boards, I think having them understand your your leader today is so important, but also making sure that your pipeline for the next um, set of leaders is going to be super important because the thing that's allowed Kip to grow and 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 yet not lose a beat so many times has been that we've had a pipeline ready to go. So for every school leader in your system, a Catholic system, my question would be, who are the next three or four people who could run that school, um, you know, two and three years down the line? And if you have no idea, which many systems don't, I don't blame them, but I'm going to say, well, I think you, you should be losing sleep over that because it's going to be here before you know it. And and when we've missed the mark on this, we have felt the the pain of not having someone ready for that role. Absolutely. And, and I think we struggle with that in Catholic schools for two reasons. The diocese is a system. I mean, Tom ran yeah, yeah. the DC system. So I think they could be doing this. Tom, I'd be interested in your thoughts, how they're doing. The challenge are the high schools, which, you know, we'll talk about in a bit, Regis, but they're independent. And, you know, for a school like Regis to grow its own is really hard. Yeah. Uh, now, they do have the benefit of the Jesuit schools network. Well, they got the network, yeah. So but, that, that's know, one piece. But it's hard to get somebody who is not a Jesuit who may be married and have a family to move from Houston to Manhattan and uproot their family because the school leaders are 45 years old. And um, who – like, how do you deal with that, Richard? Because your school's – are part of a local network. Is that where they're, so they're staying within sort of the, the diocese? Yeah, they're not moving from Houston yeah, to New York. Are. And 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 um, so first let me say like every context is different. So whenever someone says, well, how would we do, our situation is going to be harder, more difficult because A and B, um, 
there's not there's not a situation where I haven't heard that. Right. I just I just like you know, and it could be well, you don't know what it's like in in Alabama, um, and you know, oh, you've never been in Chicago, right? Um, and uh, so I, I say that tongue in cheek, but really, which is like I'm sure it's hard. I'm sure it is, but it, it's solvable. So let's say you told me, okay, look. Um, uh, a situation where the people have to really come from town, the town you're in. Then I would say, okay, uh, Tom and Rob, you really you you should have at least a city view. If not, then then you have to have a school view. So for a Regis or an independent school, I'd say, okay, you have 32 staff members, and you're telling me you don't have a pipeline. Okay, now you might say, well, only this many have the potential to be the principal, only this many have the potential to be the president. So depending on your structure, right? Okay. I still would say, well, you have 32 people. Out of those 32, some are, are, are priests, some are, you know, majority are lay at this point. But out of those 32, if you can't find your future leadership, then you probably don't have the right 32 people. That would be my, my starting thing. And and so everyone would say, oh, it's so hard here. But I'd say like, so you're saying there isn't one person in 30 who could be a future principal your future head of school. There isn't one person in 30 who could be a future um, president. And, you know, the world's evolving. You might say, well, our president needs to have this, our principal. But I, I, I would start there. If you can look at it citywide, then I'd say, okay, well, let's say it's a, a, a diocese system or let's say it's a Jesuit network system. I would still take a system view and say, okay, now you have even a bigger pool. Citywide, you're telling me there's not 10 people out of 350 who could lead your schools in the next five years. I don't buy it, but I do buy that you don't have a plan. <laughs> right. And, and right. I do buy that when you don't have a plan, what's going to happen is you're going to have five successions and board members and, and parish leaders are going to be sitting around. Sorry for the background noise are going to be sitting around and they're going to be like, Oh, what are we going to do? We're scrambling. And for five years, they could have had, they could have had five names. In fact, that they're looking at, you know, twice a year saying, okay, what does that person need in order to be closer to, to ready? Yeah. Are they getting a stretch opportunity? Are they being asked to um, oversee an important new initiative for the school? And that's what our leaders do. We honestly learned from our best leaders. I could pretend like, oh, we designed it. I looked at our leader in D.C., Susan Scheffler. She, without even blinking, was able to sit with me and could go to a whiteboard and say, I can tell you who my next leaders are. And she could go six levels down from where she sat. And she would spot them in buildings when she saw, she would sit in rooms with them. She'd say, okay, yeah. that person, wow. And then she was like, okay. So, yeah. And I mean, Richard, I've heard, um, I had a board member who worked for KPMG that KPMG has a requirement that every partner be able to name three successes at any given point to management, right? Yeah. And I think part of it is a mindset. I, I do think in the history of Catholic education, the religious orders did a pretty good job of that. They lived, yeah. knew, breathed, and they trained people for leadership positions all the way through. You know, we've 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 switched now um, to a, a, a lay led, you know, and run, run sort of organization. Um, so I think some of it's intentionality, but I think it's fascinating. You're flipping our questions around on us, Richard. I like it. Um, that's that's sort of how we learn. Um, Sorry. So, no, no, it's good. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's. But I know there's a solution. Yeah. Well, and I I think you know, and and the bit that really struck me was at the beginning, Richard, is if you if you look at um, it's not a question of protecting, and there are some things, and I'm just I'm just struck by how in Catholic education there are things that we hold very dear that do not change perennial truths and ways. But that is not an excuse to avoid being a learning organization who changes constantly. And if we're not clear on what has to say the same and what has to change, 
then we're going to get in real trouble. And if we are looking with a protectionist attitude, we're, we're a problem. And this leads to my next question. So in the US, we've basically got, you know, we got traditional public schools, we got public charter schools, we got private schools, and we got home schools. And I've often felt that in one sense, everybody's working to educate children. In another sense, we're competing. We're competing for dollars. We're certainly competing for tax dollars that come from everybody. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, don't get to private schools much. Um, and, and so my question is, like, it, there's a good side to that competition that makes us all grow. And there's a negative side because it's a real pain because in some sense we're fighting for students and dollars. Can you can you just give us any thoughts you have yeah. on that? Oh, I love this topic. So, so um you bet. So first, let me start and say, like, yes, we're all in an ecosystem that um, ideally is built around the interests and needs of children. Right. So it's an ecosystem. Yeah. Ideally, it's a learning ecosystem right? where people are like, wow, what are you doing over there? Look at Chris Torrey. What are you learning about working with employers? Hey, look at Kip. What are you learning about partnering with higher ed? Oh, look at, wow, this school is doing this amazing stuff with parent parent partnership. So that's the ideal. Um, and. The closest I think you get to that ideal is when you're in um, cities that are growing in population because you, 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 this notion of competition doesn't feel quite so, so much that way because it's a growing city. So I would just say in, in places often in like Texas, let's say in the last decade, 20 years, there's less of a sense of, oh, it's a zero-sum game. And, and it can feel more like an ecosystem and leaders from different schools and types of schools can, can um, be in the same place and not be necessarily worried about, you know, you're winning at my expense. And at the same time, Tom, there are a lot of uh, communities where we all work, where population's been declining, where there are fewer kids. Um, and so it doesn't feel that way at all. And people's, um, you know, you can all be nonprofit, you can be religious, you can be church-based, but everyone's got a financial model that has to has to work. And so, um, you know, I, I, I would say if anything, like if you said, like, what are, there, there aren't many good things that have come out of the last two years. I, I, I want to keep reviving because there's a lot, we'll talk about silver linings, lessons learned, but it's been very rough if, you, if you're poor, um, if you're struggling, um, this has been a brutal two years. Mm-hmm. I do think one thing it's shown about the ecosystem is it's tested which parts of the ecosystem are really family first, which parts are really into partnership because families over the last years have never, ever been more clear about their need um, to work with schools and educators who can adapt to the moment and try to meet them where they are because right. through no fault of their own, they're in places they never thought they'd be in. In that, in that um, setting, and again, I'm not going to use the word competition, but to say in that setting, I think schools like the ones I work with have often done well. We had record enrollment last year because not, not because some fancy strategy, not because there was like some, oh, let's get increased market share, but it's actually because our DNA is about our families. What do they need? What are they facing? And if we have to, if we have to adapt in some ways because of COVID, um, we'll do it. So we've had schools doing, you know, three kindergarten classes a day, morning, you know, midday and evening or why? Because yeah. five and six year olds are, no matter what anyone says, they're not built to be on Zoom and, and you know, sitting and manipulating, you know, their video. So there needs to be an adult around. Well, when could an adult be around? Maybe in the morning, maybe midday, maybe in the evening. So that's family friendly. Um, we've had evening classes, right, for our high schools. Why? Because a lot of our kids were going to work to provide for their families. So um, what, whatever school type you are is less my interest in that in this moment. But I'd say in the ecosystem, it has led to, I think, families being very clear or learning which 
which education and which educators um, were ready to adapt to what they needed. Um, and in that setting, um, I think schools like ours have done quite well. And I think, you know, people could call it competition, but I think over the next few years, this this question of like, what are you doing to meet to meet families they are is going to become I think a preeminent distinguishing factor between which systems thrive, which systems survive, and which systems really um, put themselves at risk. Let, let me give you just one last example because these are again there, there are very few things that are that are great coming in the last two years. But one thing we've learned is you know in the old ways working with parents we were we were missing so many opportunities. You know you have family back to school nights, you have report card nights, you got people coming commuting, working, trying to get in. Even you know for people family of my own, it's like oh back to school night you got to be kidding and it should be you know this great thing but it isn't and so uh, so you realize at COVID well we don't need that you can do that all on Zoom now we have overwhelming numbers of people coming to back to school night and report card night now my question is is the system overall going to make that the standard way of operating I'm not sure it will yeah uh, but Richard that's so interesting I tonight I'm in Atlanta yeah jump in I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm doing parent-teacher conferences tonight from my hotel yeah. room right I, I I like you I travel all the time I never yeah. was able to go to parent-teacher conferences yeah and now she was able to schedule them at seven, seven fifteen, and seven thirty tonight, and it's a, a that is a really interesting one, I think. Right, and why would you ever, at this point, having learned this, go back to away? But what'll be interesting, uh, Tom and Rob, is I think in some systems you will see that the idea of saying that that's the way we now do business, still there'll be resistance. What we're going to do all this on uh, on Zoom or on video, um, but for for systems that are family first, family focused, it will be the way of business. And in fact, it's got to be the expected way of business. So well, that, yeah, that gets back to, in some sense, we're, there are times when, well, I'll speak for myself. There are times when I can choose to protect something because I don't like the change and particularly changes over the past couple of years were really hard, even though it's better. And somehow I'm saying, you know what? No, you got to go five days a week, even though four days a week at this high school I ran last year was tremendous. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, the kids loved it and it worked well, And you know, for example. And it's, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So Richard, shifting gears a little bit. Yeah. Um, I recall you and I were sharing a taxi number of years ago, I think we're coming from the New Schools Venture Fund Summit, and we're talking, and your oldest son was at Regis, and you were very intrigued with their leadership transition. Yeah. And I think I think he was pretty young. He might have been a freshman or sophomore. And yeah. I think just the whole- oldest. oldest. Yeah, your oldest. First year, yeah. Yeah, first year. And, and I remember you, we, we talked the whole time about the Jesuits yeah. and leadership, and as you and I often can do just for yeah. forever and ever. What, what have you learned, because you now have- three sons who've either gone or are there at Regis. So what have you learned from Regis um, that, that really impressed you that, that should be replicated at Catholic schools all over that, that maybe you're stealing from them? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I mean, let me say like uh, my, you know, I have three boys. My last one is a senior there now. Um, and uh, the, the, the I, I probably shared this with you, Rob, but it might've been too early in uh, my oldest uh, time there to notice this. The number one thing that has just, and continues, I mean, continues to just, you know, blow me away is how you can create an environment of academic excellence and not have it be competitive. How do you create an environment of caring um, with excellence? And, and it is in today's world, right? I think far too often we're in environments where I think excellence is almost always equated with um, the idea that like someone's going to win, someone's not. Um, and, and, and that's like the way of the world. And, um, what I've seen at Regis with my, my three sons is um, they care about how their um, classmates do. I've never heard one 
reference by any of my three kids about, oh, this this kid is, you know, I, I, I can't keep up with this or, you know, these kids are doing it. It's it's never that way. I've never heard. It. And you can't have three. That's 12 years experience now. There's something going on there, which is and, and again, maybe it's it's as men for others. Maybe it's, um, uh, you know, the, the, the spiritual uh, uh, component. Um, maybe it's, uh, you know, what's happening in terms of the staff they've hired. Maybe it's all of those things above, you know, all those things together. But that, to me, if you could say, what what could schools model for what you'd hope the world would be like? We want to be, be the, you know, create the world you wish as, you know, as, as you wish it would be. They've, they've grown up in an environment where um, the expectation that you're bringing your very best every day and yet never feeling like it needs to come at the expense of another. I, I, I think it's the thing they have got going that I wish um, I wish for everyone and I wish for, yeah. you know, all for, school experience. For every kid in every school. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, to never, feel, you know, I, I, and, and I, so let me make a connection to this just that, you know, our it's a different system, Kevin different system. But what are we trying to do in our latest iteration? And this goes to Tom, like what is core and what, is, what are you always stimulating? You're stimulating the core. You're not trying to protect it. My grandfather used to say, feel like you're dating someone. He's like, it's either going somewhere or it's not. Like, you know, if you're just like dating forever, it's probably not going to happen. It's like, you know, it's always moving one way or the other. So yeah. um, I, uh, you know, I think with us, we've been going to say, okay, how at KIPP do you have academic excellence? That's also absolutely identity affirming. There should be no reason it can't be both. And, you know, any argument that it is, is a false argument. We can do both. And so I think we've, we've been asking ourselves, how does how, how do we want KIPP alumni five and 10 years from now when we talk to them to say, you know, I was prepared. Um, and I also was really proud of where I came from. And I was proud of my family and I was proud of my heritage. And I was proud of what it means to be, you know, uh, a kid growing up in, um, you know, this part of Chicago, or this part of L.A. And we haven't always gotten that right. And so we had young people who would leave us and they might have been academically prepared for, for wherever they were going next. But they might not have been confident. They may not have felt confidence in who they were and that they belonged wherever they went. And we think that's on us. And so we've had to ask ourselves, because we listen to our alums, this goes to the learning system, what needs to be different? And there's a lot we could do to make sure that the environment's affirming. And we can be asking ourselves regularly as educators, what does it feel like to be a student here? Which has nothing to do with, should we still offer calculus? Of course we're going to offer calculus. That's where the whole fake dichotomies come in. A child can do well in calculus, and you could also still not be taking care of their spiritual well-being, their mental well-being. Um, and that's that's the higher bar we're calling. And I, my perception, at least for my three sons at Regis, has been they've been able to do that. They've not, like, somehow they've come out of it not feeling like it's a dog-eat-dog world. And we got too much of that out there. We do. That, that, yep. that is connected. Somehow we've allowed to connect it to excellence. That excellence is dog-eat-dog. It's not. Yeah, that's great. And I'm so glad your sons have had that experience um, at, at Regis. And you're talking about your alumni, Richard. And again, this goes back 10 years. You and I were talking about post-secondary success and, you know, graduation is, is important, but getting to and through college, um, you know, I, I remember you talking about KIPP through college 10 years ago. I mean, yeah, we're, yeah. we were talking about NSC data. If you remember Chris Broughton on our team and yeah. we're, we're where are you at with that now with, with the, you know, Oh boy, this is, this is, you. I mean, like, so this, and this goes again to Tom's question about what are you maintaining? So, so what would be the, what would be the core that we don't want to get up, give, give or give up? Every young person should be given the opportunity to, to fulfill their, um, their absolute potential and hopefully be able to, 
feel like they can do their part to build a better world for all of us. We really think that's like what we can, what we should be able to do. They should be able to leave us knowing that they're on a path to, to lead their most fulfilled life and hopefully lead this world better than they found it. And we're unabashed about that. But we've learned and it's a journey, you know, Rob, we learned that middle school was not enough. So we went K-12 and then we learned getting to college was not enough. That's not the same as getting through college. So we've continued to say, okay, we got to do something different. We built out a Kip through college guidance program, best in the country driven by our experience, driven by data. And Tom, this meant that, you know, if you were a 11th grader at KIPP in 2012 or 2014, you might be applying to three colleges and I meet you and I'm like, Tom, you're applying to Harvard and Austin Community College. This is a true story. I met someone at one of yep. our schools and I said, okay, that's, those are there's great things. Like it's quite a list of two schools. Like there's yeah. a lot in between. And so we went through a journey to say, no, no, we're going to get, we're going to be the best at guidance for first, for first gen college kids. And we did it. And then we were moving headway every year. We're getting better and better and we're still getting better. And then we discovered, Hey, even if we keep getting better, there's a whole bunch of kids for whom college won't be the first stop or may not ultimately ever be their stop. And the way we were doing business, the message was, Tom, you're either, if you're a Kipster, it's a student at Kip, you, to be a Kipster, you're a college person. And if you're not a college person, what, what are you? Right, right, And right. so our alums told us, including our most successful college graduate alum said, you know, I have friends who are now firefighters and they've been in the military and this and that, and they don't come back to Kip. And the reason they don't is not because they're not happy, it's not because they're not doing well with their life, but they feel like they let you down and they feel wow. shame. Yeah. And I'm like, well, all of us, I was like, shame. So for us, like, okay, we got a whole bunch of kids who doing right by the world, right by themselves, right by their families, and they feel shame. So now we call it now Kip Forward, Rob. Mm. And Kip Forward, which is the next version of Kip Through College, is inclusive of Kip Through College. But it basically says we're all moving forward. For the majority of us, college will be this step after high school, but it too is only a step towards what is your path in life that you want to seize. Mm -hmm. And for some, it'll be the step you take immediately after high school. For some, it may not be for a few years. You may go to the military first. And for some, you may go directly into a different path that actually speaks to you, but it's always forward. We are unabashed in our belief that for the majority of our kids, college will be right. But in fact, we're also learning that it's not just college, it's which college at what kind of tuition cost, which kind of program that has what kind of outcomes. More than ever, we want to make sure you're clear about who you are, Rob, and what you want next for yourself. If we do that, a lot of good's going to happen. Longer answer than you asked for, but we continue. Like The core is fulfilled lives. The core is building a better world for us all, but you got to keep learning. And um, yeah, that's what allows you to even be better at, the, at, at what you did five years ago, but, but even try new things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in, in that vein... Richard, um, as we, as you know, this is one of our, one of our sort of last questions for you. Though we can we can talk about anything is, you know, we've seen so much change over the past couple of years. Uh, if we ask you to sort of project out, you know, into the future, what do you see the experience of the student right looking like, and and maybe their sort of what's their daily experience as a student going to look like in you know, a building's going to be different. The way they're taught going to be different. What can you, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. what do you, what do you dream about in that regard? Um, like, yeah. what do you think it's going to look like? Um, so first of all, I do ne- I will never advertise myself as a futurist. Um, so, so you'll, you'll have better guess for that, but I would say, I think where you're going to see the biggest changes, I think the, the, the walls, the barriers, the sort of locked in way we work between the ages of, let's say, I'm going to say roughly 16 to 24. I think there's going to be absolute transformation in that part of life. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're feeling it more than ever. So I think how does a young person set a course from 16 on? Yep. I think what we know is the upper years of high school will begin to really morph into new things. Crystal Ray is a example of that. Um, I think technology, you know, I'm not a technology, but I do think, you know, and I'm not a metaverse, you know, a guru, but I think, I do think, look, virtual reality, the ability to understand what does it look like to be a doctor, to be this, like there's gonna be so much more opportunity for people to have exposure to things that um, are hard to do now. Um, and I think, you know, the workforce is beginning to recognize that it's going to be, have to meet its needs, employers in new ways, because the old system doesn't, doesn't necessarily deliver in the way it needs to. I think employers are increasingly going to say, we can do more. We know what we need better than, than that intermediary does. So we're going to be more designed. Yeah, this is so interesting. One of our uh, our first guests of the season, Father Dennis Schulzschneider, we asked him, what is the greatest threat to American Catholic colleges and universities? You know what he said? Google you. Yeah. They have, a, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but they have 150,000 students taking certificate courses, Yeah. you know, blew the University of Phoenix out of the water. And, yeah. and it's exactly what you're just saying. They, they're they not getting students ready to come to young young adults come and work. So they said, let's train them. So if you, if you get three or five certificates, you're guaranteed a job at Google. And it, I mean, it was, this, this is what, it, and, and this exactly. So, so you've had the person who saw the future already. And that is, I think where you're going to go. I think if you're in higher ed, um, unless you're in the most elite, highly selective institution that right now is probably going to moat for the next hundred years, you've got to be sweating bullets and saying, how do we, um, justify our cost structure, justify our expense in a way that actually leads to, to, to the person being able to lead that fulfilled life. And if Google you, here's the other thing that, you know, no one wants to say, a lot of young people are going, they are getting a BA degree and then they're discovering, oh, I actually have to go do Google you now. Cause the thing I got didn't actually get me what I needed, but I've spent a lot of money to get that. And this other thing doesn't cost nearly as much. So that is so. I think between the ages of sixteen and twenty-four, you're going to see massive disruption. You're going to see employers driving the change. You're going to see employees driving the change, saying, "Look, I figured out a straighter course," and right. higher ed is going to have to justify. It. And you know, for a lot of our kids, just to be real, like you need to be able to work and learn. That's the that is going to be the way. It's not a the idea that you could go to school have no have no income and stick with it for four or five years in a row. That is a that is a tradition or a, a right. notion that only applies to people who come from money. So, I just think that's good. I actually think on on you know K five, um, I, I would argue that I think it's it's going to be less disrupted. If anything, we've learned from the last two years. Um, our young people need to be in community, um, learning what it's like to be a, a, a human being, what it's like to be uh, a colleague, how to share, how to yep. um, how to be kind to others. And the, the missing of those years is really detrimental. And um, as much as technology is great, it does not deliver either academically or the social and physical needs kids have. So. I, I just think that's going to be less disrupted. Um, the biggest opportunity I think there will be. Um, again, I think some of the, the the technology we're talking about with virtual, um, you could imagine younger children now having a chance to see the world and things that they'd never be able to see before. They would have to be described or put in a textbook. And I can imagine, right, in five, 10 years, it's like, okay, let's go, let's go look at Nepal. And it's just everyone puts on their... And yep. they're there. They look. Yeah, yeah. Walking yeah. around. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You know, Richard, one of uh, one of the projects we're working on that is getting the most excitement 
hands down from any high school or WIC is we're doing a dual credit program with Marquette University where students can take real Marquette courses, Marquette professor in high school, get high school credit and college credit. They could feasibly leave high school with only three years required for college. And that's and so that's so if you're in um, their shoes and if you're in Marquette shoes, like that's an example of the disruption, right? Like I think that's those things. Uh, I was just on a call with with another startup, a nonprofit startup, but uh, I think it's nonprofit that's like going to higher ed, you know, campus around the country and saying, "Can we offer a class of yours to high schoolers?" and and they get credit from the from the college, and it's you know it's two years old, but it's taking off. I, I, these walls are going to feel ever more artificial. And, you know, and if you're Marquette or someone else, you're going to be like, look, like where are the students going to come from? Let's, let's go down and into the high schools. And if your high schools, you're like, what, what keeps, what keeps us relevant? And it's like, well, credits will. Um, no. So, but I think I hope Richard that during that process and disruption, all the adults responsible for that keep a focus on what is best for the student so that we don't end up with a huge turf war for the 18 year old or whatever 17 you know a turf war that doesn't actually help the student continually learn and grow and develop um and then that's that's the responsibility i think of of us those who are you know managing education to some degree um is to keep the keep the students first and, and for another podcast, uh, we could talk about agency and advocacy because I do think, um, Tom I, I and Rob, I'd love to think everyone will always operate in their best interest. Even good people sometimes can be blinded by their their, their self-interest, right? I, I'm trying to preserve my institution. or sure. And so one of the questions is, how are young people set up to also advocate for their own, um, you know, interest. And part of that can be, we're, we're, we're rebuilding, um, talk again about never try to maintain our advisory curriculum because we've learned, one of the things we learned is like, our, the number one thing our alums told us, Tom and Rob, that they didn't get, you know, we survey our alums all the time. Um, financial education, personal finance. Yep. Yeah. Higher ed doesn't give it. Life is not giving it to them. Life's giving it to them at the wrong time in the wrong way. Yeah. And so we need, we need, you know, if someone knew what, what we know now, they would be like, I'm doing the Marquette thing. I'm getting these credits now. And I'm not going to go do that thing because that's $8,000 I got to come up with that I should just avoid. Understanding that we have kids who are signing themselves up, but they're basically buying a house, right? At age 17 or 18. And if you said to someone, are you ready to buy a house? Like, here's the mortgage. You'd be like, what are you talking about? We've just... We haven't explained it to them when you when you sign up to go to that college right now, you're taking out a mortgage, and you're bought you just bought a house, and you've had no financial financial education, and that's where Tom like people can if 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 you're on the other end you're like it's a pretty good deal they don't really know what they're doing, and every year sure. a new a new thousand kids are going to do that because they don't know so we got to do some more education to give them agency have them be stronger. Uh, consumers. And uh, I, I hope we all are, are supportive of efforts to do that because yeah. um, it's what they deserve. Well, Richard, we very much thank you again for joining us. We do have one final question that we ask all of our guests, and it's kind of a fun one. Who was your greatest teacher and why? Oh, I've, I've had um, a lot of great ones, but you know, the one, um, and I, you know, I haven't been asked this question in a long time, but the one I think it was Mr. Alexander. He was my fifth grade teacher at Midland School in Rye, New York. It was um, him who really um, stimulated, I wouldn't have called it them, but like intellectual curiosity, love of learning, like going farther in your um, inquiry, understanding 
what, what, what about the play we're reading? What about this radio show we're listening to? What, and, um, he made you just want to, as we say, it kept run to school and, um, and, and, and love, love just per, the pursuit of learning for its own sake. So that was, uh, Mr. Alexander. And I thank him for all he did for me. That's awesome. That's great. Well, Richard, thank you again. Great to see you. And, uh, Next time in New York, I'll look you up. Awesome. Thank you, Richard. Take really care. appreciate it. Take, Take care. care. Bye. Bye. So, Tom. Wow. Good episode. And um, I, I had forgotten that Rick Braddock connected us. So I, I need to send him a note of thanks because when he made that introduction um, so many years ago, it, it really did what he wanted. It helped Christa Ray so much and really appreciate Richard's insights today. Also, his, his candor and, and honesty. Sure, absolutely. And Rob, I was very struck by the, it reminded me of obviously of Peter Senge's work on, on the fifth discipline to be a learning organization. And and just in, in some of the circles I work with in, in Catholic education, and I think in other areas of private education, the there's there's more looking back than looking forward often. And it's very easy to get into a let's protect versus let's continually evolve. Um, because I think that continually evolving takes real effort and are willing to challenge stuff that we believe and think. And with big institutions, that can be that can be difficult. And if you combine that constantly evolving and learning with a radical focus on the student and the student's needs supported by data, then good things can happen. And, and you, we can see that. We can see that in KIPP. We can see that in Crystal Ray. And we can see that in many other schools and systems as well. But I thought that was just a great point. Absolutely. Well, Tom, grateful for your joining me again today. And for our listeners, kind of excited. Our uh, <clears throat> next guest after Richard is going to be the one and only Father John Foley, the founder of Christa Ray. And he will be our first, second time uh, guest on the show. So uh, That's great. listeners, tune in in a couple weeks for Father Foley. Tom, I'll see you and, next uh, week in Baltimore. Absolutely. That'll be wonderful. And to our listeners, if you've enjoyed this show, please like us and rate it. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next time on the next class. Thank you. With that being said, let me take a second to introduce our sponsor, Catholic Virtual. Catholic Virtual is the trusted online education partner of Catholic schools worldwide. We develop customized online learning solutions to meet the needs of our partner schools and their students. Visit our website at www.catholicvirtual.com to learn more. We hope you enjoyed this episode today. If you did, we'd greatly appreciate it if you would share this episode with your friends and family. If you get a moment to rate or review us, that too would be much appreciated. Have a great day.